I'm hiking to the top of Mount Constitution in Washington's Moran State Park on Orcas Island. Orcas is the largest of the San Juan Islands, which are scattered across the Salish Sea between mainland Washington and Vancouver Island, British Columbia. Mount Constitution, the highest point in the San Juans, commands a magnificent view of the whole region. Oh, wow. Oh my God. This view of Baker right across from us is just incredible. Mount Baker, a 10,000 foot glaciated volcano punctuates the horizon. Emerald islands speckle the Cerulean Sea. <laughs> Families and a youth group have gathered here to watch the sunset. At the very summit stands a three-story stone watchtower built by the Civilian Conservation Corps in 1935. I enter through a heavy iron-banded wood door and climb the cut stone steps to the top. The horizon paints orange, then pink, and finally purple, the colors reflected on the Salish Sea. These waters and their islands are the ancestral home of the coastal Salish Native Americans, including the Nooksack, the Lummi, Clallam, Saanich, Samish, and Songhees. At high tide, the San Juan Archipelago comprises over 400 islands and rocks, 128 of which are named. There's a distinct sense of peace on these islands. Island time is the culture here. Folks wave to one another as they drive past. There are 16 amazing state parks spread across the San Juans. 11 of them are whole islands themselves. I spot one of those islands, the great horseshoe of Susha to the north, its channeled ridges and cliff faces evidence of the glaciers that carved these lands and troughed out the sea. These state parks are considered some of the best places in the country to spot marine mammals, including the endangered southern resident orcas, humpbacks, gray whales, porpoises, dolphins, sea lions, and seals. So many seals. I'm excited to be here. My buddy Hobbs and I plan to kayak out to one of these state park islands. We're waiting on one last weather and tidal forecast before making a final decision. I've sea kayaked a couple times in my life, but only for short jaunts. Nothing like an open water crossing excursion where currents can sweep one out to sea. In the distance, I spot a massive cargo ship outbound from the port of Vancouver, B.C., steaming out to some distant destination. Between the ports of Vancouver and Seattle and several naval bases, the Salish Sea is buzzing with marine traffic. We're learning that this traffic has a massive impact on the marine mammals of the region. To learn how whales and the marine industry are adjusting to one another, we'll talk to Jason Wood, who monitors the hydrophone at Limekiln State Park, and we'll paddle out to one of these remote island state parks, where we hope to experience possibly the most magnificent natural phenomena in the Pacific Northwest. I'm your host, Alex Roberts, and you are listening to The State Parks Project. One, two, three, four,
on our way to where are we going again? Jones Island. Jones Island. This is my buddy. Hobbs Barber, he him. I'm the Parks Interpretive Specialist 2 for the San Juan area. I actually know Hobbs from my first year working at Stevens Pass Ski Area, where we were both dirtbag ski instructors. I was one of the many new guys, and Hobbs was the cool guy who the little Groms requested by name. He's been living in this dope little yurt for a few years right outside of Moran State Park. When I pulled up the day before, he shared how island life comes with its own challenges. How's it going? Good. How are you doing? I am completely and totally exhausted. I had an electrical problem. I went to bed at 10 and then discovered I couldn't turn off the overhead light because the remote control that turns it off is out of batteries. So I had to go to the office to get batteries. And I got back and I slept for half an hour. And then I got in a war with a raccoon that was trying to get in. What? So I went to bed at about 4.30 this morning. So I'm tired. Yeah. <laughs> as a novice sea kayaker, I'm relying on Hobbs as the island resident to make the game plan. Plan A was to paddle out to Susha, which requires a long open water crossing to reach. Plan B includes a shorter crossing to Jones, a smaller island off the coast of Orcas. Both islands are state parks and only reachable by boat. We poured over weather and tidal forecasts, tracking where the wind and currents would be going, comparing the data to maps to make educated guesstimates as to how these elements may interact with the islands. For example, when a current moves through a narrow constriction, like between two islands, the sea can turn into something akin to a river. It's all way more complicated and nuanced than I realize. Hobbs shares how if you play it right, you can use the currents to aid your paddle. Play it wrong, and you may never be seen again. One of the first paddles I took, I left from Obstruction Pass State Park, and I was like going down to around Obstruction Island. So you've got the on the eastern lobe of Orcas, you've got Obstruction Pass State Park, and then a narrow channel and then a little island called Obstruction Island and then another narrow channel and then Blakely Island. So I was like trying to go to Blakely and I crossed between Obstruction State Park and Obstruction Island just fine and then when I got around to Obstruction, the Obstruction to Blakely Passage, I watched a motorboat like up on step and just barely moving forward. Oh, really? It's yeah, just fighting just, such a strong current. Uh-huh. And I looked at it and I was like, nope. <laughs> I'm just going to turn it around. I was like, uh-uh, not dealing with that. I don't know what's going on there, but I'm in a pack raft right now. Like, I will get swept out to sea and never be found again. While the consequences can be disastrous for kayakers, it's the insights he shares from learning to free dive that truly terrify me. There's some strong currents here that'll just pull you to the bottom of the ocean. So, like, you really... Oh, really? They'll pull you, you down? Down, yes. Yeah, which is like, ugh. <laughs> That's one of the most terrifying, ugh. I just do not like that. So, yeah, like, so my friend who's teaching me how to free dive, that's one of the things that she's been teaching me is, like, you really have to watch slack tide. You have to watch, you know, like, where are the currents and how strong are they and what are they interacting with. The fact that the water's moving around you, which it wasn't doing in the lake. And you get to look at things like marine mammals which can make things very complicated, very fast, because, you know, they're animals. 
that can bite you. They don't usually, but they can. I'm still kind of stuck on the fact that there's currents that can pull you down. <laughs> I've I've heard stories that like I don't know how true they are, obviously, because I can't corroborate. But you know, like groups of divers going out, and you know, one person just getting too far into one of the currents and getting just like pulled down so fast and so far that people could not go get them because it was too dangerous. And, yeah, and basically just like drowning and then being swept out to sea. Which is just like absolutely horrifying. Ugh. Ugh. Yeah. So anyway, that's what I mean. You don't really want to mess with the currents too much because they are, they can do some really, really scary things. I guess I'm just feeling really happy that we're doing plan B than going to Jones <laughs> instead of. Yeah, playing it safe. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm perfectly happy with that. Yeah. I notice we're not wearing wetsuits or anything. No, we're not. And part of that is, that's another part of the reason that I was really hesitant to do Susha. I don't usually cross to Susha without wearing a dry suit because it's so big. If you do fall in, like, you, there's no getting to land if you fall in. On Jones, the crossing is small enough that your, your, no, your window of no fall zone, where it's like, do not tip over right here, is very short. So how cold is the water here? I'm not sure what the actual temperature would be. Cold. Hobbs tells me that he hopes that tonight we will get to experience one of the Pacific Northwest's most amazing natural wonders, bioluminescence, a special occasion that he has had the chance to experience while kayaking out here in the San Juans. And then you look at your paddle and your ripples and they're just glowing blue like they're the northern lights. Oh man. <laughs> it was like, it was absolutely phenomenal. Bioluminescence is created by algae, which blooms in the warm waters of summer. At night, when stirred up, they glow a brilliant blue in the dark waters. I've never experienced this, and it's our hope that the display will be out again tonight. A short dirt road delivers us to a small rocky cove where we will launch. This is so pretty. <laughs> we have to take our kayaks down that rock. Okay. Yeah. It's not too hard though, and we can we can team carry them if you want. Before unloading, Hobbs points out Jones, a relatively small island amidst a broad channel. It's difficult for me to judge the distance. It's not exactly close, but doesn't look too far to paddle. We survey the water, trying to discern the direction of the current's flow. Oh yeah, you can kind of see the current. It must have switched already. You can see it's flowing north right here. Yeah, I do see that. I think this might be in an eddy, though, so the main current may actually be going the other direction. We'll see. <laughs> well, so, like, think about, again, like, on yeah. a river, if an island sticks out, or, like, if you have a bay, when the current, if the current's flowing north, it'll usually loop back south when it hits the bay. Yeah. So, in the bay, the current will be flowing the other direction from the main current. Oh, wow. Yeah, so... Sweet. Yeah, moving right. water. <laughs> I love it. That's awesome. Yeah, it's cool. All right. I guess we get these kayaks going. We get these kayaks going. Yep. We unload the boats off the roof of Hobbs's tiny Volkswagen and carry them down a steep, rocky step to the small cove. Aha! I did it. Okay. 
You got any wisdom or advice for packing a, a sea kayak? Not really. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I kind of just put stuff wherever I can. It'd be pretty hard to mess up. To mess this up. Oh, I'll find a way. <laughs> we get the boats loaded up and Hobbs hands me a GPS that I hook to my life jacket. You carry the GPS. Okay. And I will carry a marine radio. Good deal. So that if either of us goes down, the other one has an emergency beacon. I'm not exactly sure how to use this thing. In retrospect, I should have taken a moment on shore to figure it out, because if the worst were to happen, being neck deep in the Salish Sea and getting colder by the second probably isn't the time for a tutorial, but I'm eager to get going. Hobbs shows me the intricacies of the kayak. Because you've got two foot pedals up here. Okay. And you want to make sure, kind of like if you're in a whitewater kayak, how you kind of you can hug it with your knees, right? And everything feels snug. You want the same thing in a sea kayak. I have to remember how to adjust these. It's been a while since I've had to. So if you pull this, uh -huh. that'll drop the rudder down. And then if you pull this one, it'll pull the rudder back out of the water. Uh huh. Okay. Um, what do you think? What do you think? We ready? Or? I think so. We pull our boats into the shin deep salt water and gingerly wriggle our bodies into the fiberglass holes. It's tippy, but after a moment, I gain my equilibrium. Once settled, I take my first timid paddle strokes, and I find I love the sensation of gliding across the water's surface. I lean into the strokes, accelerating with each dip of the paddle, relishing the momentum. Our plan is to paddle around to the far side of the island and hope to get one of the few sites on the Cascadia Marine Trail. If that proves full, we'll paddle on a little farther to the orchard, a wide open site that was once a homestead and provides ample camping. The Cascadia Marine Trail, or CMT, is this really cool concept that I had never heard of prior to this trip. It's a network of 66 campsites and 160 day-use areas scattered across the Salish Sea, and suited for what their website calls beachable, non-motorized watercraft. Kayaks, basically. 27 of these sites are at state parks, including Jones Island. So with a map of these sites and knowledge of the tides and currents, one can navigate all manner of marine routes. This way, the intrepid paddler can navigate this network of sites, piecing together a journey to different islands on a choose-your-own-adventure style route. We really couldn't have asked for more optimal conditions. The current is gentle and even helps propel us towards our destination. The sky is clear, not even a hint of a breeze. It's sunny, yet cool enough to warrant a light jacket. In other words, perfect Pacific Northwest summer day. Within about 10 minutes, my legs fall painfully asleep. I'm not entirely shocked. This has happened before when I attempted to become a whitewater kayaker. I've got chronic lower back issues and something about the body position restriction of movement really aggravates it. A few years back while navigating class three rapids, my entire lower body became excruciatingly numb. It got to the point where I had to beach my kayak and desperately wriggle out of the plastic confinements to writhe on the shore, manually manipulating my temporarily paralyzed legs 
and rubbing feeling back into them. It legit took minutes for me to be able to stand. And now this is all happening all over again. Momentarily, I consider calling the whole endeavor off, hollering over to Hobbs about my predicament and saying we should just go back and just enjoy Orcus. But we're already nearing what I perceive to be the halfway point of our crossing. I figure I can just tough it out a little longer, perhaps make some adjustments that would fix this issue. What those adjustments might be, I can't even fathom. So I paddle on, pushing each stroke a little harder, hoping to shave off some of this interval of agony. After a few minutes, Jones's steep shoreline looms larger. The numbness fizzles into searing pain. I very much hope that a CMT site is open. We paddle around the steep headland to the far side of the small island. I'm ecstatic and relieved to find that there is only one other group at the site. We beach our craft and I awkwardly wrestle my body out of the kayak, spilling onto the shore, needing a moment to articulate my hips and legs before floundering to my feet. Hobbs and I high-five, crack open a couple of beers, and set up our hammocks. We take a moment, gazing out over the Salish Sea to the other islands, watching as sailboats and other craft track past hoping to glimpse a dark dorsal fin cutting through the current. During the summer months, the Salish Sea is home to an endangered population of orcas, or killer whales. And these state parks are some of the best places to see them. To learn more about these iconic creatures, let's jump over to Lime Kiln State Park on the western edge of San Juan Island. There, an underwater listening station called a hydrophone has been set up to monitor both marine mammals and one of the largest threats they face. To learn all about it, I met with the program's director. Yeah, so my name is Jason Wood. I'm a bioacoustician, so I study the sounds that animals make and also the sounds that humans make and how those human-made sounds affect animals. I'm the, the managing director of Smrue Consulting, which is a, a commercial offshoot of the University of St. Andrews in Scotland, and I'm based here in Friday Harbor, Washington. Excellent. And can you describe where we are for a moment? Yeah, well, so we're standing on the shoreline of on the west side of San Juan Island, and we're looking out over Harrow Strait. And the other side of Harrow Strait is the southern tip of Vancouver Island. So we're actually looking across the international border between the U.S. and and Canada. Yeah. So and why? So we're here. We are at Lime Kiln, and why here? Why is this place so important? Yeah, there's a there's a number of reasons for it. One is that it's a, a Washington State Park, so it gets gives us access to the site. It's just a, an amazing, stunning place uh, to be and and to do research at. Partly, it's infrastructure, so it helps. So we maintain, in collaboration with with the Whale Museum, we maintain the, the hydrophone here that is cabled to shore and into the lighthouse. And so having that infrastructure to be able to bring our data back to shore to some computers that are housed inside a, you know, a waterproof building and that also has internet access and power and all that is just, a, it's, you know, it's, it's crucial. It just makes things a lot easier for us to do. And in terms of the other reasons why, this is just a, an amazing place and, uh, to, to try to study 
the, the sounds that, that animals make and, and how human-made sounds affect animals, partly because of, you know, where this is in the, in the Salish Sea. So the Salish Sea is the, the inland waters, roughly speaking, of, of, of British Columbia and Washington State, just a very productive, dynamic area. And this part of Harrow Strait also sees heavy use by a population of orcas called the southern resident killer whales. So in the summertime, they're often here, so it's a great place to study them. It's also a main artery, a main pathway for ships coming and going from the port of Vancouver. So we have this, this, this mixture of both, both this wonderful biological sound that's being created here, but also anthropogenic sound. So it gives us that chance of, of that overlap to try to understand what's going on. Awesome. And what is it, you know, logically, biologically, geologically, hydrologically, all those things? Like, what is that fun mixture that creates such a productive place for the orcas? Yeah, so, well, there's <laughs> so many things going on. In, in a nutshell, one of the, the primary drivers of the productivity here are, are the currents in, in the Salish Sea. We just have really strong currents that pump through here, mix everything up, really get the nutrients flowing through the water column, and that supports the bottom of, of, of the food web. And then, you know, what really brings orcas back in here is, is their, their primary prey, which is salmon, and mostly Chinook salmon, that are coming back to the rivers of, of British Columbia and Washington State to support spawn. And so that's really what drives the southern residents coming in into this area. Now, is it orca or killer whale? Your personal choice. (laughs) So either is good? Yeah. Well, some people are, you know, feel adamant one way or the other because, you know, some people argue that it's a, it's a bit got some negative connotations there and stuff, and that's fine. And, but I just, uh, I, I I use them interchangeably. Nice. Is Star Trek Four: The Journey Home your favorite Star Trek movie? I don't think I've seen it. <laughs> Do you know what I'm talking about, where they have to go get the whales? There'll be whales here! Yeah, I know, I know vaguely, but I haven't seen it. <laughs> I'll, have to, I'll have to watch it. Jason, you're, you're missing out. <laughs> yeah, just the, the cinematic excellence of 1988 that is Star Trek Four. The southern resident killer whales that Jason mentioned have become the icon of both the San Juan Islands and the broader Salish Sea. They are comprised of three pods, which are identified with letters J, K, and L pods. According to the Marine Mammal Commission, there are only around 74 orcas populating these three pods, earning them the status of endangered. Jason explains what sets this population of orcas apart from others. What is the saying? You, you are what you eat. And so that's what drives the differentiation between them. So southern residents are, are fish-eating orcas. These particular ones seem to feed almost exclusively, not totally, but almost exclusively on, on salmon and, and mostly Chinook salmon. The, the transients, or sometimes they're called bigs killer whales, after one of the early researchers in this area on orcas. And, and they are a very different a group of orcas that, that feed on marine mammals. And and, and then the offshores, much less is known about them, and, and they seem to feed mostly on sharks and, and other, other fish like that offshore. Whoa. Something I, I found out about whales and orcas in particular yesterday while at the museum was I was reading Granny's story. Oh, yeah. And, and that she, it was estimated that she was 105 years old. I did not know that whales could reach 105 years old. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, you know, just another, you know, great example. I mean, you live that long, you got to have some kind of a memory of, you know, where to look for food at certain, you know, under certain conditions and stuff like that, and, and pass that knowledge on to, you know, the next generations. And orcas 
are one of the few species like humans and elephants that, that have postmenopausal females. The direct benefit that's been shown that pods with older matriarchs whether, and, and also elephant herds with older matriarchs, typically the youngsters have a higher survival rate because of the knowledge that's being imparted by that matriarch. So you got you got to listen to mom or grandma. <laughs> Some important parallels to be drawn there. <laughs> oh, that's great. I asked Jason about the challenges the Southern residents are facing that are driving them to be endangered. So there are three th primary threats to Southern residents. One is, you know, lack of food and, and the quality of food. The other is pollutants. And then the, then the third is noise and vessel presence. So salmon, for especially folks that are maybe not from the Pacific Northwest, can you give us a brief overview of the history of salmon? <laughs> Dear Lord. Okay. I'm going to help Jason out a little here. If you are not born and raised here in the Pacific Northwest, where a salmon is placed in the crib of every baby reared in Cascadia, you may not be familiar with how important these fish are to the culture and ecology here. You see, salmon were the key source of sustenance for Native Americans of the region since, well, always. Today, salmon are a $3 billion industry and their nutrients help support at least 137 different species of wildlife. Before colonization and the damming of the rivers, the waterways were so thick with the fatty fish that it was said one could walk across their backs from one bank to the other. They are massive fish, carrying huge fat reserves for their journeys. You see, salmon are anadromous, which is a fun word meaning that they leave their freshwater beginnings and journey to the big salty ocean to feed and grow and possibly get eaten by orcas before returning to the freshwaters from which they began, swimming upstream against the current to breed, a process called spawning. Now, out of respect for the salmon and to ensure continued healthy populations, Native Americans traditionally waited several days before fishing the runs, allowing thousands of salmon to pass and reach the spawning beds upriver where they lay and fertilize their eggs. Eggs that these salmon will never see hatch, as this is their last act before death and the return of the nutrients of their flesh to the forest ecosystem from which they were born. So, you know, there are king salmon that, that run up the Columbia. So the mouth of the Columbia comes out, you know, just beyond Portland, between Oregon and Washington State. And it goes all the way inland into Idaho. So you can go hiking in the summer in the mountains in Idaho and see these Chinook salmon that have literally swum, you know, 600 miles into the interior to spawn. And the only way they can get there is by having these massive food stores. And, and so that's really what the Southern residents really love is that, hey, hey, wow, that's, you know, a lot of bang for your buck in terms of one little food parcel. You know, most runs of Chinook salmon are endangered as well. And, and so, you know, once you get that far down, you know, and specialized and your, your primary food source starts to disappear, you're kind of like at the end of the limb and, and not a lot of support behind you. Whereas if you're still a generalist like a human or a, a rat or, a, you know, a cockroach or something, you know, you, you got plenty of options and choices in terms of what to feed on. 
And have salmon just been like overfished or what's... Yeah, it's a combination of overfishing and, and, you know, habitat destruction and stuff along the rivers and their, their spawning rivers and stuff like that. So it's, it's a combination of a lot of, yeah, different things. Yeah, and the, I'm sure the dams are... Yeah, the dams certainly contribute a lot and there's, there's you know, growing sentiment to try to, you know, get rid of some of the, the hydroelectric and other dams in the Snake and the Columbia and other places. And there was a dam down towards the southwest towards the, the Olympic Peninsula and the the Elwha Dam was taken out a few years ago over there. It wasn't really in use much anymore and, and uh, so, you know, folks convinced the powers that be that to take it down and they've already seen, you know, salmon starting to recolonize those rivers. While removing some dams have brought salmon populations back to a few watersheds, the overall effect towards historic salmon populations is marginal at best. And when considered with competing interests such as commercial fishing, there just isn't enough salmon to go around, causing orcas to enter periods where they rely on their fat reserves to survive. In other words, they're starving. Jason tells us how this first problem is only compounded by the second threat to orcas, pollution and chemical toxins. So what happens is, you know, the fish eats something that has it in it, and then, then something eats that fish, and, and, and so on up the food chain. And every time it goes up, basically, those pollutants get concentrated in the body of the animal that, that ate it. And, and so they just keep on building up, building up within the, the animal in question. So if you're an orca, you're at the top, pretty much at the top of the food chain. You, you tend to be, you know, where it really accumulates the most. And these toxins, they just don't break down in the environment, and then they bioaccumulate. The other one is DDT. And so with, you know, I thought we got rid of that. We did, but it just doesn't, it doesn't break down in the environment, you know, it, unless it gets, you know, finally, you know, buried under, you know, tons of soil and, and stuff. So the, the whales are still picking it up, you know, how many decades after DDT was banned. Wow. <laughs> and and do, you, do you have any information on, on how those pollutants actually have an effect on the whales? Yeah, so so I'm I mean I'm not a, a a chemical or toxicity biologist and stuff, but but what seems to happen is it, it, it's the first thing it does usually is 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 affect their ability to reproduce. So it's it screws somehow with their hormones and other things like that, and and they they either aren't able to get pregnant or they they miscarry and things like that. And then the really sort of double whammy is that because it it it's fat soluble, and you know marine mammals have this thick fat layer. Usually what happens is they can accumulate quite a bit in their flat blubber, and it's kind of inert. It's not really like doing anything there. But once they start starving and have to metabolize that fat, then suddenly it releases all these toxins at the exact time when they're like, they really don't need it, you know? So it's kind of like they're getting kicked while they're down. And I, I spoke a little bit earlier about, you know, how you, you know, it just accumulates and accumulates. It, it, so it, it does that for both male and female orcas until the females have an offspring and they start breastfeeding the offspring. And what breast milk is like tons of fat. And so what happens is they're basically dumping all these toxins on, the, on their newborns, which is also, you know, n- not a good thing. Hey, friends, I just wanted to jump in and say that if you're experiencing some grief, you might want to jump ahead about a minute and a half. Next part's a little rough. Since biologists have begun monitoring the southern resident populations over the past several decades, they averaged less than two healthy births per year, with only 25% of their babies surviving. So toxins that pollute their gestational hormones and taint their vital breast milk are particularly devastating. 
and the whales seem to understand how precious each newborn is. In 2018, a mother named Telequa gave birth to a calf who died shortly after being born. Yeah, I mean, that was heart, heartbreaking. You know, the, the baby was seen, it was, and it just was never strong, and it, it died. And unfortunately, you know, the, the, the mother just wouldn't let the baby go. So she would keep trying to push the baby up to the surface as the, as the pod was traveling. That must have been so exhausting for her. Yeah, no, absolutely. But somehow the trauma of it, you know, the mother just couldn't, couldn't say bye. In her grief, she carried the corpse of her child for 17 days and over 1,000 miles before, heartbroken and exhausted, allowing her baby to sink to the bottom of Harrow Strait, somewhere in the waters before us now. Jesus, that is so heartbreaking. I just need to gather myself for a moment. Yeah, sorry. Look at the view. Um, I know it's there's it's always dangerous to anthropomorphize, but I mean, but to, at the same time, recognize things like grief yeah. in another animal is also important. So the southern resident orca's food source, salmon, is dwindling. Chemical toxins in those waters have invaded their food and their bodies and is being passed on to their young. But there is a third factor having a major impact on their plight for survival, sound. S sound is one of these amazing and, and wonderful ways that a bunch of different animals communicate, sense their environment, because light doesn't travel in the ocean, in water very well, so. How much better does sound travel through water than air? Yeah, yeah, way better. So what is it like? five times the speed in water than it is in air. Is that right? Yeah, it's about, about that. So it's about 1,500 meters per second is about how fast it travels in salt water, and it, that varies a little bit. And so I didn't realize it actually, I, it, went, it goes faster. Yeah, so it's, it's, it travels faster and it travels farther in, in, in the ocean and in, in the salt water than it does in, in the air. If fish could scream, the ocean would be loud as shit. <laughs> so, so, you know, we're very, humans, we're, visual creatures. We use sound a lot as well, but, you know, a lot of it's based on sight, and we can see fairly far, but, but marine mammals can't, you know, right? It, you know, it gets dark pretty quickly as you dive, and you just can't see things very far. And, and so there's a selective pressure for, you know, using sound for a bunch of different very basic biological functions, everything from navigating to locating prey to locating mates and just, you know, basic social interactions and coordinating and stuff like that. So you're pretty much your basic life functions. And it's not just the orcas communicating and listening to what's around them. No, it is way cooler than that. It's a strategy that's been developed by all toothed whales, or odontocetus for you fellow nerds out there, which in addition to orcas includes sperm whales, narwhals, belugas, and even dolphins and porpoises. And this strategy is echolocation basically biological sonar. When hunting, they send out a series of clicks called click trains. These clicks spread through the waters like a flashlight beam of sound. When a sound wave hits an object, an echo bounces back to the whale. Echolocation allows them to detect fish at distances up to 500 feet. And this is really cool. They have adapted a way to focus that sound. 
bending it to get a clearer picture of what they are pinging with their clicks. How do they do this? By using their melon. Seriously, that's what it's called. It's pretty much the top portion of the whale's head from their snout to their blowhole. The melon is basically a big mass of waxy fat that they can shape and shift around. Do yourself a favor and check out the video of this on our website. It is really wild. We don't even fully understand how this thing works, but toothed whales have been able to differentiate things like a yummy kernel of corn versus a nasty metal pellet from nearly 50 feet. It's an amazing adaptation of biological evolution. So it's not just hearing what's around one while underwater. It's more like literally seeing what's around you, like daredevil, but from extreme distances. But with all of the marine traffic noise of the thousands of cargo ships, naval vessels, and private boats, it makes the whole picture fuzzy, making it that much harder for the southern residents to find the dwindling salmon runs. Just as in air and underwater, different kinds of sounds can interfere with your ability to communicate or, or hear things. It can cause like behavioral reactions. So like if it's just kind of annoying sound, you're like, I really don't want to deal with the sound anymore. I'm going to move somewhere. You know, I'm going to leave this area, go somewhere else. Or it could like startle you. It could stop you from foraging, stop you from mating, all sorts of things. Then, you know, on up from there, you can also, it can even cause, you know, at very extreme levels, a death in, in marine animals. And, and so like, for example, if you have a very strong impulsive sound, so an impulsive sound of has a very sudden onset. So one of the things that causes that is pile driving. So when you build a dock, mm. you have to like basically have this big crane that hammers the big piling into the, the ground under the water. And that sets off these very sudden, almost shock waves. You know, they're basically sound waves. But And, and what, what happens if they have a swim bladder, that's filled with gases, right? And so the gases are, are very different density than the water. And, and when you have that huge difference in density, sound waves actually reflect off of that surface. And so what it does is it starts moving that air sac swim bladder inside the fish at like differently and quite violently differently than the rest of the bodies moving from the sound wave as it passes through the fish. And so it basically causes massive internal bleeding in this fish. It's this violent thing that actually can can cause death. And, you know, other times it can cause hearing damage and permanent hearing loss, which, you know, has pretty big repercussions for an animal that, you know, depends quite a bit on sound for basic life functions. It'd be like blinding a wild animal, like a terrestrial wild animal. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's analogous. Jason brings up another man-made sound that has been shown to have detrimental and tragic effects on marine mammals. So, so there are incidents around the world of whales beaching themselves after being exposed to Navy sonar. But that tends to be marine mammals like uh, um, beaked whales and things like that. So these are, these are deep diving animals. And, and if they're deep down and they're suddenly exposed and they try to rapidly ascend, one of the things that can happen is it's kind of like a scuba diver getting the bends where bubbles form inside your, your, your bloodstream and tissues. And that can cause, you know, some serious damage and or disorientation and stuff. And especially with pods of whales, they'll end up beaching and, and some are still fine, but they like because they want to stick together. So there are some mass, sometimes some mass strandings of, 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 of whales, but it's oftentimes these sort of deeper diving species. Mm. 
the Benz thing makes more sense. I was picturing, you want to know, like, honestly, once again, making a sci-fi reference where, like, the empathic character is being telepathically attacked and their, like, brains are, like, scrambled, like like the movie Screamers. Scanners, actually. Screamers, that's a different movie. So I thought, yeah, I thought it was, like, whales being driven nuts by sonar and just being like, I gotta get out of here and... That may be the start of it in the sense that they're trying to flee from it and in fleeing from it they do they 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 come to the surface too fast and things like that. To learn more about all of this, I highly recommend watching the movie Sonic Sea. It talks with some amazing scientists and is beautifully done. Monitor the noise of marine traffic and study its effects on marine mammals. A hydrophone has been set up to listen to what's going on underwater here in Harrow Strait. I asked Jason to describe the hydrophone. Our hydrophone, which is our underwater microphone, is basically just attached to a concrete-filled tire that has a PVC pipe coming out of it, and it's got, you know, it's about, you know, I don't know, three feet off off the bottom, and that just holds it in place. You kind of have to, you have to, because there's strong currents in here that push through the area. Awesome. And will you tell me about going out and maintaining the hydrophone and how that works and what that looks like? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, so we're really lucky in some ways in the sense that we, we get to scuba dive to maintain the hydrophones here. So we kind of have to like clamber you know, through crevices down into the water. Sometimes the equipment in the past, I, I've literally tied it off kind of like we were climbing to like repel it down into the water because it's, you know, just to do it safely, lowering it down and stuff. So, so we get down into the water and we do a little bit of a surface swim over to where our, we have a cable that goes from the lighthouse into, into the water. And we just follow that cable down. And the first, the first part that we, we, we go through is this, this amazingly productive kelp bed. Sometimes it's a bit hard with all our gear and stuff, but you get through that, you go sort of do a little bit of a drop down to a ledge that's sort of 30, 40 feet. But the, the hydrophone that's down there right now, we keep going. There's a, there's a, uh, it, just, it just drops off after that. And because Harrow Strait drops down to, I'm going to get units mixed up here, but you know, it's about 200 meters or so. So let's call it, you know, 200 yards. I don't know, divide by whatever to make it fathoms. But anyway, so <laughs> look it up, you can look it up. And that cable that they follow out to the hydrophone? connects back into the historic lighthouse here at Limekiln State Park. So we can monitor 24-7 to see when the whales are here and how they're using the habitat or how often they're using the habitat. But then we're also monitoring all of the, the ships that go by, monitoring how loud they are. I talked about sound being able to actually, you know, kill, you know, animals and stuff, but most of the sound they're exposed to is not. It's, 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 it's sort of these, these lesser sort of, you know, thousand cuts and stuff. And, and that's a real challenge for, for biologists and ecologists working in this field to try to understand how, how you add up all those little, those thousands of cuts to decide whether or not, like, it really is important to do a certain kind of mitigation or even prioritize which kind of mitigation that you might approach. And we've been fortunate enough to be working with the ECHO program, so that's the Enhancing Cetacean Habitat and Observation Program of, of the Port of Vancouver, that have been trying to come up with mitigation strategies to right, try to reduce the, the underwater noise effects of, of commercial vessels on marine mammals. And so since 2017, they've actually been doing voluntary slowdowns uh, in the summertime when the whales are back uh, mm. in Harrow Strait. So um, the, the ships actually will slow down 
Um, the, so like container ships, um, car carriers and things like that will slow down to 14 and a half knots. And then the bulkers and, and tankers and stuff like that will slow down to about 11 knots. We found that usually we get about a three decibel reduction in ambient noise levels from those ships passing. And, and you know, people listening will be like, well, what does that mean? And in terms of, you know, trying to make that into something biological, we think it results in about a 20% improvement. And so, so less lost foraging time. So in terms of I guess that's the good news about noise pollution is that it's not like a toxin that just like DDT or something that just sticks around in the environment for decades and decades, right? You stop making the noise, the pollution goes away, right? And, and so you can, you can do things fairly effectively. And there are other exciting developments to solve the issue of marine traffic noise. They're finding that more efficient turbines and ships designs have the double benefit of being both quieter and saving shipping companies potentially millions in fuel costs. Even as a private boater, you can you can make a lot of difference. You know, when you're around marine mammals, go slower. You know, decrease your noise levels. If you're if you're sure that you know where you're going and you're not going to run aground, there's no safety issues. Think about turning off your depth sounders. Your depth sounder is using sound to figure out how far the bottom is from your for your boat. But the good news is that like we can do things now to make a difference. So for me, that's heartening. Love it. Thank you again to Jason Wood, director of SMRU Consulting. And I just wanted to point out that these best practices with marine mammals that Jason is talking about, you know, slowing down, keeping your distance, they're not just the right thing to do. They're also the law. So please remember to check your local regulations wherever you are. Back on Jones Island, Hobbs and I have a campfire going. Washington State Parks has included a fire ring, not really attached to a campsite, but right on the beach, which I love. It's like, folks are gonna have fires down on the beach anyway, so let's give them a place to do it right. It's a true pleasure to listen to Hobbs. We enjoy a few beverages each, and once we get a little lubricated, I goad Hobbs into doing a drunk history on Moran State Park in the beginning of Washington State Park system. He got attacked by a deer, and then apparently his cook got attacked by a deer that like came into the kitchen. Up. It's a complete ecosystem in there. It's so cool. Being like, do you know what these fish are? Because this place is cool as shit. Please check that out in the bonus episode. Periodically, Hobbs tosses rocks or wood into the sea literally testing the waters to see if he can stir up any bioluminescence. Right as I declare I'm ready to climb into my hammock, Hobbs does one last test throw and is stoked by the results. So we've got bioluminescence going? And uh, potentially, yeah. Well, definitely, yes. But I mean, let's see. Yeah. See that? Oh, wow. Yeah. So basically, whenever you disturb the water, there's tiny little, I think it's animals. I'm pretty sure it's animals. I think it's animals. <laughs> you tried it. Uh, you can see, hold on. We're gonna, we're gonna, all right, hold on. There yeah! Go. Oh, we should go out in the boats. I was gonna say, the best thing to do is go out in the boats. The best thing to do is go out in the boats. Cause that, See how that glows? Yeah. <laughs> Do you see how that glows blue? 
it's it's just so cool. <laughs> I'm so stoked that it's here. Oh my god. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Hell yeah, dude. We got bioluminescence. We got bioluminescence and good stars. Yes. Oh my dude, god. Dude, you just got the trifecta out here. <laughs> Hell yes. We don our PFDs and launch into the placid salt water. We circle the shallows of our cove, skimming across a black mirror reflection of the Milky Way's shimmering arc overhead. V's of blue light trail off our bows. The boat's movement so smooth it feels like ballet. And as each paddle stroke breaks the serene surface, it erupts into brilliance. We are awed into silence. I've never experienced anything like this. And I note it as another example in nature where, despite science's ability to tease reason from phenomena, it is nothing short of magic manifested in reality. Woke up this morning on Jones Island and the winds really come in. The the whole strait is full of pretty turbulent white caps. It looks pretty brutal out there. I am so glad that Mr. Hobbs steered us right and that we went with plan B going to Jones instead of Susha. <laughs> what are your thoughts? <laughs> I'm just looking west out into a giant channel full of white caps and like pretty aggressive looking water. Uh, yeah, I think we made the right call. Yeah, glad we had a Plan B, plan A would have been great, but I'm so glad we had a good plan B. <laughs> so what's so what what's what's plan B look like now? Do you think? Uh, in terms of like getting back? Yeah. Yeah. Well, we got kind of two options. We can play with going south around the island, so we're paddling into the wind for a while. But the nice thing there is then we start the crossing from the south end of the island and get blown north through that channel. It's the narrowest crossing. Uh-huh. Um, or the other option is we basically go backtrack the way we came in. Right. And our water situation is dire. We might have to go for a 10-minute death march to go get water at the orchard. Yeah. That was, that was devastating news uh, to me this morning. I thought I would be kindly and go get water before you woke up. Ah. And I, I know. I walked over to the dock and it was like, water's only at the south end. Bastards. And I was like, no. So yeah, we have to do that just absolutely unscenic walk that we did yesterday. Uh, <laughs> well, I for one definitely support the move of using the loss of our water to make coffee. I mean, you know, trying times, trying circumstances. It was an executive decision on my part, yes. Uh, I think I it, made the correct one. And it's one that I support. <laughs> <laughs> We get about filling up on water, striking camp, loading the boats, and planning out our crossing. As we set out to launch, I look out at the waters and convince myself that they have calmed somewhat since this morning. Yet, I feel anxiety tightening my gut. Not just for the lingering whitecaps, but for the pins and needles that will imminently attack my lower body on the paddle back. I take a deep breath climb into my kayak, 
and launch into waters that bear no resemblance to last night. The current's strength is immediately palpable. We pop in and out of coves along the shore, using the eddy currents to propel us to where we want to cross. I watch several motorboats charging through the waves, deflecting plumes of white spray. The prospect of getting in the path of one of them adds to my list of concerns. We paddle to where we think will get us the most efficient crossing, confer on a plan to stick together as best we can, and set out across the choppy open water. It's a constant balancing act as the hull bucks around underneath me. Gone is the prospect of effectively gliding across the surface. This feels more like boxing than ballet. I wriggle around to take the tension off whatever straining my nerves and blood vessels. But by the time we are halfway, I am wincing in pain. But we paddle on. As we near Orcus, a strong current pushes off the island, further hampering our efforts to reach land. I breathe through pain and sore shoulders and focus on getting closer with each stroke. We finally reach calmer waters around the coast of Orcus. We pull into the cove that we launch from, and I repeat my unceremonious beaching as I spill out of my boat onto the shore. It's a relief to be back on Orcus. The crossing's behind us, and I have a newfound respect for sea kayaking. Strong work, man. Well done. <laughs> That was some of the gnarlier kayaking I've done, getting back across. Yeah? Yeah. Like, if you flip in the middle of that, it's so hard to get back in your boat. Oh my god. Is the problem. I can, I can barely get in it when it's just on shore. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. D-Reagan. Yep, D-Reagan, and then moving on to a whole different sport. <laughs> Did you ever see a whale with a polka dot tail? Did you ever see a man with eight fingers on his hand? Did you have to dry your eye when you saw that buggy fly? Oh no, tell me it's so. Well, a special thanks today to my friend Hobbs Barber with Washington State Parks. Thank you, Jason Wood, for sharing your bioacoustic work with us out at Limekiln State Park. Megan Alexander with Washington State Parks and Leave No Trace, as well as Amanda McCarthy from Washington State Parks. And Danielle Stevens with NOAA for sharing research about the Southern residents and the underwater recordings you heard on today's episode. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider making a donation on our website or buying some of the really fun merchandise on there. They make really great gifts as well. Please, please, please rate, like, and share our show and tell a friend about it. That is absolutely huge for the success of this project. We really enjoy making this grassroots project, but we can't do it without your help. Also, please follow us on Instagram and tag us in your state park adventures. We love hearing your stories and about what's going on in your state parks. The State Parks Project, America's second best idea, is a community member of Leave No Trace, who reminds us to recreate responsibly by slowing down and turning off depth and fish finders when nearing whales and other marine mammals. And of course, always enjoy these animals from a safe distance. It's not just the right thing to do, it's also the law. Please check your local regulations. 
Soundtrack provided by Spare Rib and the Bluegrass Sauce, Free Music Archive, and this song from Ween. We'll be back with more stories from our state parks. Thank you for listening. Help me.